There is this thing. Do you realize consciousness is affected? There is this. There is this thing on. There is this thing going on. Do you realize our consciousness is affected? There is this thing going on. What is called the news. I'm brought to you live. Hello and welcome to another episode of Unfit to Print, the McGill Daily's radio show on CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal and worldwide on CKUT.ca. I'm your host, Julie Bujal. Let's get started. So it's November 21st. It's a beautiful Tuesday outside, less cold than most days have been so far in Montreal. And we have some great guests today on the program. So we're starting off with headlines from the Daily from this week's sex and gender issue. After that, we speak to Arnaud Pedram, who is one of the Daily's culture editors. They also were part of the Sex and Gender Committee and wrote a piece entitled On Faggotry about Travis Alabanza's radical trans poetry. After that, I speak with Greg Mickelson, a prof here at McGill and one of the members of McGill Faculty and Librarians for Divestment. Because of the efforts of McGill Faculty and Librarians for Divestment, as well as the student-run group Divest McGill, recently the MAUT, McGill Association of University Teachers, voted to divest their holdings from fossil fuels, as well as to support Divest McGill in its call for the University Board of Governors to divest the endowment fund from fossil fuels, which is a huge victory for the movement here at McGill. So I'll be chatting with Greg about how that came about, the role of faculty in advocating for divestment, and the importance of this move in terms of both McGill and in terms of the Canadian context as a whole. Thank you for listening. This is Unfit to Print. So this week is the sex and gender special issue of the McGill Daily, which means that a number of pieces throughout the issue are going to be within their respective sections, be it sports, sci-tech or culture, but are going to deal with questions of sex and gender that often aren't addressed. So first we have the editorial, the University of Toronto must reconsider Jordan Peterson's position. Jordan Peterson is a trans-denying prof at U of T, and we argue in this editorial that he goes beyond freedom of speech to specifically target activists, threaten violence against students, and generally create a toxic culture that stifles instead of encourages academic debate at the university. In news, we have pieces about the two big manifs that happened recently against unpaid internships and against hate and racism, as well as a Q&A with former SMU VP Finance Arisha Khan, who recently resigned. So we have two great commentary pieces this week, both dealing with sex and gender. We have one about how children dressing up in drag can buck gender stereotypes at a young age, and another by Florence Ashby, sounds pretty gay to me, about whether or not sleeping with trans folks makes someone queer and sort of the politics that goes on with that. 
we also have a great feature about asexuality and how it's been linked to mental illness, to something being wrong, to a lack, to an absence, and how we can redefine asexuality as something normal and accepted. We have a piece written by one of our editors on sex over the airwaves and how you can use technology to to reimagine your sex, your gender, and your relationships. Finally, we have a piece by Arno Padram, our culture editor, on faggotry. And Arno joins me now. Hello, I'm uh, Arno. I'm a third-year U3 uh, student at McGill and uh, culture editor at the McGill Daily. I'm also a mixed and gender fruit person, I guess. That's probably relevant to the theme of today. <laughs> so you're on the committee for the Daily's sex and gender issue. Can you tell us a little bit about that process? Okay, so it was made, the decision was made kind of randomly, but I mean the, the um, gathering of all these articles um, allowed us to explore a bunch of things about sexuality that is not heteronormative and like very classic and um, that was interesting and like how gender plays into um, relationships and flirting and how gender plays into ideas of sexuality. I think it's a theme that's like very important that everybody can relate to even if they say they don't so and I think a lot of people take interest in that topic and it's just a topic that we don't talk about enough I think. Yeah, and instead of it being like a pull-out issue within the paper, it was just within every section there was more of a, a focus on that because it is so an essential part of life that we gloss over in a certain sense. Mm-hmm. I think this format is interesting. It's something I had seen at Le Deli that I kind of imported here. Yeah, I think incorporating and like sort of directing the general paper every every week without having it to be restrictive to every single article is interesting because there's like a sort of recurring theme instead of just like a special edition that's completely distinct yeah and so you uh as well as being on the committee and as well as being an editor also wrote a piece uh, on fabricry so do you mind talking about that piece so this piece uh, came after I read um, Travis Alabenza's chapbook. So Travis Alabenza is a multidisciplinary artist in London, uh, an actress. They are also a poet, an activist, and are very vocal about their non-binary identity. And so they wrote this chapbook about mostly transgender non-binary identity and the experience of harassment in public transportation, in public spaces, about self-care, about community, about uplifting other non-binary folks. And so this chapbook really moved me and I started to to write about it. And they develop in it a really interesting political project of thinking that the people that harass them are actually, they say, one of their lines is, You say faggot and I hear that I love you. And there's this whole poem about how they actually feel that a lot of the people that harass them actually desire them. That actually either they desire them like to have sex with them or they desire, they wish they had like the courage to fully express their gender identity that they feel is restrained probably. There's this beautiful line saying that that they're opening the discourse from kill all men to maybe not all men who say they are are actual men or something like this. I think this is a very interesting discussion because this kind of project and proposition is opening the idea of trans to everyone 
everybody has their own questions about gender and stuff, but like not a lot of it is vocalized and not a lot of people have the chance and opportunity to explore it. So I think what Travis Elbensa gets to is this idea that like it's kind of ridiculous that we divided the entire humanity in two boxes and that like everybody is supposed to fit. Yeah, I saw this talk about who's allowed to be a victim by Travis Elbensa and there's this whole talk about how victimhood is although still like very denied to women and it's still like more legitimate for cis women especially uh, but when it comes to gender non-conforming folks like most of them are not allowed to be victims and so they're saying that like in public transportation for example like they have witnessed this event this event where like a woman was being harassed and a lot of people started speaking up and like they felt relieved that people were speaking up and that were like protecting this person or like helping them and but at the same time they felt kind of jealous of the protection that they were granted because they've they're harassed and they they also tell that their all of their friends who are gender nonconforming on a day-to-day -day basis are harassed gender nonconforming people are just not yet considered to be part of the human experience i guess in a way and that's why like we're not allowed to be a victim the fact that we're a victim is a response to a, a perceived transgression i guess and so we're not truly a victim because we are actors of a transgression whereas most gender nonconforming people they are choosing to live their life truly and it's i don't know if that's necessarily a choice but it's just like yeah like this this idea of transgression is just there's just those people are not allowed to be victims they're always perpetrators and that was interesting so then how do you feel like Travis Alabanza takes all these experiences and makes them into their art and what is the importance of their project um yeah so I thought it was interesting that Travis Alabanza not only talks about harassment but also about the solution and that they see or that the, the, the sort of modes, the ways of living in which they see themselves grow. Um, so they have a bunch of poems where they clearly like engage the reader. I think it was interesting in putting the reader's name. So there's like one of the first poems, it's like where there is blank space, put your name and then there's like blank space. You are not the violence you, d you receive. You do not blank space, you do not deserve the violence you receive, things like this, and their poetry is very engaging in that there are direct addresses or like sort of things you would see on your Facebook feed. Sometimes it feels like they just texted you after something that happens, and so it's very engaging and like it's not only just engaging in the way that they're close to the reader, it's that they're also inviting the reader to join their voice to the poetry. So there's a joint enterprise between the writer and the reader. Um, and that, in my opinion, is a sort of breakaway from the idea of like self-care as a very individual thing. Uh, it's more about like trying to create community and it's especially important with like trans and gender non-conforming folks because I feel like the experience of being gender fluid, gender non-conforming is a very individual experience and very can get very lonely and there's not a lot of people usually around. Like a lot of our questions about gender are very complex and very individualized because everybody feels their gender in a different way and so it, it's an experience that can make you very, very, very lonely and if 
if we were to think uh, of a way to solve this as a very individual thing that you can do on your own, like this thing of self-care of being like, you buy your thing and you do your thing on your own. Like it's nice, but I think it's not enough. I think community is important in that it breaks away from all this sort of loneliness that is, it's like one of the most pregnant things I feel like that is part of the experience of being trans is being lonely being lonely in your experience of gender, being lonely in your experience of of harassment and all these things, and engaging the reader in that way creates community, creates uh, a bond with other people and saying you're not alone and we can share things together and we can have those similar experiences. So that's a way to break away from that. Thank you, Arna. Thank you, Julia. <laughs> So we are back in the studio and on the line, I have Greg Mickelson. So Greg is a prof at McGill and he is one of the members of McGill Faculty and Librarians for Divestment. Greg joins me now. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So do you mind talking about the decision that happened last week with MAUT? Sure. Um, so what happened last week was there was a general meeting of the McGill Association of University Teachers. Uh, on Friday, um, and at that meeting, two motions were discussed that had actually been passed the previous week by the MAUT Council. So, uh, MAUT Council is basically our elected representatives, um, <clears throat> and they had passed uh, one resolution that uh, basically directs the Vice President of Finance to divest. MAUT's own funds from all fossil fuel companies, um, and uh, our MAUT funds are probably about half a million altogether. Um, and then the second resolution calls on the university to divest both the pension fund, which um, covers all faculty and staff at McGill, uh, and the endowment, which has been the, um, the main target of the uh, student divestment movement here. Yeah, so that is just, I mean, that's a huge win. Um, for the listeners who don't know, uh, McGill Faculty and Librarians for Divestment is a sister group to the student group Divest McGill. And this group, which uh, you're a part of, Greg, has been working at different levels with different faculty associations. Um, so we've had uh, arts, law, environment, faculties like that um, vote in favor of divestment, but can you tell us about how this sort of goes one step beyond, and I guess how that process happened? Yeah. So um, what's similar about this latest vote is that it was 
overwhelmingly in favor of divestment. Uh, I think the, the numbers were like 10 to 1 for the first motion and uh, 9 to 3 or something for the <clears throat> for the second one. And that's similar to the margins um, within the school environment uh, and the arts faculty where it was something like 107 to 19. Um, and I guess what's significant about the latest vote, though, and, and the you know the latest passage of the motions, is that now uh, organizations collectively representing all students and all faculty at McGill have come down solidly on the side of divestment. Um, <clears throat> so basically, what's different about MAUT is that uh, MAUT represents all faculty and librarians at McGill. Uh, the, the previous votes had, you know, just been within specific faculties or, or schools, et cetera. So, yeah, I think it is an important step forward. And what do you feel like the role is for faculty associations and individual profs as well to speak in favor of divestment? Well, that's a good question. Um, uh, our association is going to be communicating this result uh, both to the Board of Governors and to the Pension Administration Committee. Um, and I hope that the Board of Governors, um, you know, basically moves on this issue. Uh, as you probably know, there have been two previous um, petitions by students to the Board to divest the endowment, um, and the Board refused both of those. And it was later shown that... Um, because they refused the first one, they actually lost the university $40 million. So there was an article published doing the calculation, and you know what, what if they had taken the money out of fossil fuel when they were first asked to and put into more sustainable investments that McGill already had? Um, and if they had done that, <clears throat> the university would be $40 million ahead. Um, but, of course, the main purpose of the whole thing is not primarily financial, it's, it's political and moral. Um, if, the, uh, if the alma mater of the Canadian Prime Minister divested from fossil fuel, that would have a big political impact. So really the, the people who decide the main divestment decision at McGill, I mean, there's groups like Divest McGill, which is student run, um, and then McGill Faculty and Librarians for Divestment. But really, this decision is in the hands of the Board of Governors. Um, right. And so if you if you read the works of education critics like Henry Giroux and others, um, there's this, this, this feeling that there's a growing corporatization of academia. Um, yes. I mean, I, it's, it's always been this way, sort of a few people are making decisions. But um, I guess could you speak to if there is this sort of this feeling that at the upper levels, there's an unwillingness to divest because it could hurt corporate ties. You know, like how much can, what, what's the next step for, you know, faculty and for students? Well, that's a good question. I, I think um, in the short term, the, the next steps are just continuing to uh, exert pressure on the board to, to, to finally do the right thing. Um, and I could talk at, at, at great length on, uh, you know, how badly uh, the board responded, especially the last time when they produced a 15-page document that would have actually failed as an undergraduate paper at McGill, mm-hmm. trying to justify um, their refusal to divest. I guess a, long, a more long-term project is to uh, 
try to get reform of governance um, so that we don't have a board that's dominated by basically a self-selected group of what are called members at large um, with very little representation of the people who work and study here. So there are only two student uh, representatives, um, two faculty representatives, and two staff representatives on the board. Um, and yeah, I mean, that, that, that issue of, of corporatization is something that um, the Canadian Association of University Teachers, which is the, um, the nationwide organization, uh, it's a group of mostly unions, but also some faculty associations like ours. And they had an, uh, <clears throat> an article about a year ago uh, talking about corporate ties between boards of, uh, of Canadian universities and various um, industries. Uh, and then beyond that, um, it's certainly true that uh, you know, the, the McGill Board of Governors has ties specifically to the fossil fuel industry. So it certainly raises questions about what's going on. Yeah, and it actually just came out that, um, and Divest McGill hasn't really publicized this, but it came out that um, somebody who was on the Board of Governors during that decision, that past decision not to divest, um, is now, I think, on the board of Petrocan or something like that. So, yeah, there's definitely, there's a sense in which it is an old boys and an old girls club for sure. Um, right. But I guess my question is, to people who, specifically about the professor angle, to people who say, you know, per, academia should sort of be this neutral space that allows for um, the interplay of ideas and professors shouldn't be taking a stand on this. Even the university shouldn't be taking a stand on this because it should just be an institution that is allowing sort of the critical flow of ideas. There shouldn't be any inherent values or political stances. How would you respond? Yeah, I mean, the idea that um, that any institution can be value-free, I think, is just uh, a myth. And, and in fact, by investing in fossil fuels, McGill is making a value statement. It happens to be the wrong one, exactly the wrong one. But, um, yeah, I think, I think uh, often arguments about value freedom are a cover for just protecting certain kinds of values. Um, and, you know, I think it's important to recognize that investing in fossil fuel is just as much of a value statement as divesting would be. Okay. Um, thank you. I guess just before you go, I want to ask you, so you mentioned the report that came out and sort of the failures of the port when the university decided not to divest. So for listeners who aren't familiar with the report um, and that last decision, which was in the spring of 2016, I believe. Um, yes. Yeah. Do you mind going over sort of what what the professor and um, what the library and a faculty group identified as some of the main flaws in that kind of thinking? Yeah. I mean, uh, very simply, um, a, almost no evidence to, to support any of their assertions. And that's one thing as a professor, you know, we try to teach our students to do that if you're going to claim something in a paper, you actually cite it up with some evidence and maybe some scientific studies, et cetera. There was none of that, uh, except for I think they cited one source um, about the, uh, <clears throat> um, the, the, the carbon actually emitted in the process of extracting and transporting fossil fuel as opposed to burning it. 
Um, so that's the that's one main problem. And then the, the arguments offered in the paper are just one fallacy after another. Um, one of them being uh, so. So at question was whether fossil fuel companies cause grave social injury. And one of the arguments was, well, we think it looks like global warming is going to get worse. So the problem could get worse. Therefore, it's not grave now. And that's just a that just doesn't make any sense. Another uh, argument was, well, we can't divest because we need an orderly transition away from fossil fuels. But given that only a, a certain quantity of fossil fuels can be burned and still stay within the, the two-degree uh, global warming limit um, that everybody thinks is the absolute limit of, uh, you know, um, you know, having a li- basically a livable planet. Um, <clears throat> given that budget, the more we invest in fossil fuels, the steeper and more catastrophic the reduction is going to have to be, and therefore the more disorderly the transition is going to be. So they say we can't divest because we need to have an orderly transition, but actually by refusing to divest, they're making for a more disorderly and far more precipitous um, transition away from fossil fuel. So th- those are just two examples, but they're, I mean, the 15-page the document is just filled with, uh, uh, you know, other, other fallacies. Yeah, um, and for sure the argument that, you know, we need an orderly transition really doesn't fly if you look at what happened last week in Bonn um, with those climate negotiations. Uh, you know, the urgency is, is very clear, especially with the U.S. pulling out um, and especially with large nations pulling out and a lack of overhead accountability like you once had with Kyoto. Um, the onus is really on municipalities and corporations and institutions to take individual roles because there's not as many checks and balances on the national and international level, which is, I guess it's, it's pretty frightening. And how do you feel like within that framework? I mean, what people who are within the McGill sphere, whether they're students or faculty or alumni, um, moving off of this new victory, how, how can people really push to make sure that the administration is more accountable and and is hearing the overwhelming support in favor of divestment. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, there are many ways of uh, of trying to be heard, and Divest McGill has come up with many creative ones. Uh, the, the most recent one that I know of is they, they staged what they called a, a book blockade uh, in front of the James administration building, where they basically had a bunch of uh, bookshelves of books about global warming. Um, and they greeted the members of the board who were coming in to supposedly talk about social responsibility. Um, so there are many ways of uh, of trying to be heard, and and you know this this was one of them, basically just proving that you know students and faculty very very solidly favor it. Um, but I agree with uh, something else you said, which is that municipalities have had to take up a lot of the slack and other institutions as well. So um, in previous divestment campaigns, such as from South Africa and, uh, and tobacco, um, divestment by major universities played a crucial role in the legislation that was eventually, eventually passed that uh, helped to end apartheid, um, helped to reduce the harm caused by smoking, you know, getting it out of public spaces, et cetera. 
So uh, action by um, institutions and, uh, and especially educational institutions have played a crucial role in the, in the past, and, and they need to step up. We need to step up in this case as well. Thank you so much, Greg, and for the work that you are doing as well with uh, McGill Faculty and Librarians for Divestment. Thank you for the chance to talk to you. I'm Noam Chomsky, uh, speaking from MIT. Uh, you're listening to CKUT 90.3 FM. Thank you again for tuning in, listening to Unfit to Print. My name is Julie Bijal, and this has been CKUT's Unfit to Print with McGill Daily. Thanks so much. Oh my, oh my, oh my, oh my, oh my.